and go. <laughs> Here we are, guys. Another chapter of the book Prostitute, subtitled Calling a Wayward Church Back to Christ. Of course, I am the construction monk and I am reading the book to you. And today, bada bing, bada boom, we are ready to read chapter 14, which is titled The Woman on the Beast. All right. The Apostle John wrote the last canonized book of the New Testament towards the end of the first century during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Under Emperor Domitian, one of the most severe persecutions of Christians took place. It was during this time that John himself was thrown into a bath of boiling oil, and when that did not kill him, he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. It was there that he wrote the book of Revelation. John's revelation begins with this statement, quote, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And that reference is from Revelation 1, 9-11. You know, John was tasked by God through the Holy Spirit to make an assessment of the seven most prominent churches of his time. God, through John, was assessing the quality of his house, its parts and systems, and the power behind them. That's why so much of John's revelation focuses on the unseen action behind the scenes of human history. Only the first three chapters address those seven churches directly, right? The other 19 chapters deal with the spiritual reality of two kingdoms in conflict over the control of God's people. In those first three chapters, John lays out a grim and stark assessment of the church. Of the seven, only two churches remained completely faithful to Christ. The other five were warned to repent and return, or their lampstands would be removed from before God. Wow. The main critique of those five wayward churches was that they had compromised their position for the protection of power in the nation-state. It's no wonder they did so, though, you know, considering the severity of the persecution Rome was exacting on the church at that time. Man, Emperor Domitian was brutal and direct in his persecution of Christians. In his attempt to revive the pagan roots of Roman religion, he deemed any other religion illegal. During this time, if a Christian was caught, they would be brought to court and punished if they did not renounce Christ. Most of the time, that punishment was death. Whew. It's easy to understand why churches during this time would seek the favor of local governments and leaders in order to stay out of harm's way. In the interplay between local and national rules, sometimes individual cities and leaders could protect civilians against laws they deemed unjust. As long as Domitian didn't know, they didn't have to follow all his decrees. Maybe the churches in some of those cities didn't see their desire for political protection as compromising the gospel of Christ. But Jesus did. It didn't have to do with the external works of those churches, but the kind of power they were seeking. 
Even in the first century, much of the church was flirting with the convenience of Satan's power structure. It's hard to believe that within 70 years of the church's beginning, over 70% of the main churches were in such dire straits. You know, I don't think these wayward churches thought they were doing anything wrong, right? From the outside, they were still doing all the right Christian stuff. But from the inside, behind what was visible, was an infestation of Satan's weeds among God's wheat. It took a person like John to reveal the spiritual health of these seven churches. John was a prophet. He had the ability to hear what the Spirit wanted him to say. That's why he began his revelation with, quote, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Revelation 1.9 Through the Spirit, John had the ability to hear what the Spirit wanted to say to the church about the spiritual reality behind its external works. The reality was an intermingling of the church with God, with Satan's form of power. The culminating imagery of that kind of intermingling happened towards the end of the book in chapter 17. In chapter 17 of John's Revelation, he introduced the image of a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The beast had seven heads and ten horns. Before this image of a woman seated on the beast, John's Revelation is already thick into the imagery of the beast itself, right? You know, we're first introduced to this imagery in Revelation chapter 11, when the beast comes up out of the abyss as if emerging from hell itself to wage war upon God's two chosen prophets. The beast kills those two prophets and leaves them lying on a street of, quote, the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And that's from Revelation eleven seven through 8. We're given more insight into what that, quote, great city represents as John continues developing the image of the woman on the beast in Revelation chapter 18. There he wrote, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And that's from Revelation 18.10. Remember, part of Satan's paradigm isn't just the beast of nation states, but the city tower, Right? In the image of the woman on the beast, we see both of those parts of Satan's kingdom at play. The beast represents the nation-state aspect of Satan's power, and the city tower, the system by which he enslaves humanity to that beast. The second time the beast is mentioned in John's revelation, it's coming up out of the sea, and Satan directly gives his power, throne, and authority to it. Whoa. That's Revelation 13, 1-3. In scripture, the sea often represents chaos. In opposition to God and his divine order, the chaos of the sea is Satan's hell. The beast comes up out of the chaos of hell to confront God's heavenly order with Satan's city tower paradigm. Satan's city structure, the great city, is represented by many cities in John's revelation. That's interesting. It's represented by Sodom, Egypt, Babylon, and even Jerusalem, right? Satan's city isn't a city, it's the city, the great city, right? That's how John talks about it. Why? Because it's not a place, but a system of order which organizes humanity in a certain way to achieve a certain result. Satan's city operates hand in hand with his beast. <clears throat> in chapter 17, it's revealed that the beast the woman sits upon has seven heads and ten horns. That's Revelation 17, 7. 
Those heads represent seven mountains upon which the woman sits, which are seven kings, and the ten horns are ten other kings over kingdoms established by the beast. You can read that in Revelation 17, 9 through 12. This woman on the beast is positioned on top of the power of nation states, which are like mountains, but artificial mountains made by Satan. You know, an artificial mountain, it's kind of like a pyramid, right? And a pyramid is kind of like a tower. It reaches up to the heavens like the Tower of Babel, attempting to set up a false system in opposition to God. And the reference to the Tower of Babel can be found in Genesis 11.4. Satan's nation-state system is the power structure of the pyramid tower at the center of his city, the great city, which is the system by which he organizes and enslaves all of humanity under his control. The woman sits atop of this system because she is not of it, but has positioned herself to draw power from it like a rider on an animal. It is the means and power by which she operates and moves. Now that it's more clear what the beast is, let's take a look at the woman who sits upon it. The woman on the beast is the church. Wow. But not just the church, right? The woman is the church prostituted to the power of Satan. John reveals more about this early in chapter 17 at the start of this whole section about the woman on the beast. He wrote, quote, On her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. That's Revelation 17.5. Remember, the mark of the beast from John chapter 13 is on the hand and the forehead. And that's Revelation 13.7. Here the name of this woman on her forehead also represents a way of thinking, of reason and logic, which is in opposition to God's truth and revelation. For the church, human intellect and reason cannot reveal its true standing before God. Right? Only divine revelation, like John's, can reveal the heart and perspective of God to his church. Part of Satan's design is to lure the church away from God's revelation in order to settle for the lesser perspective of human minds through human understanding. When we are operating in our own ability to understand, even to understand what we think God wants, we play right into Satan's hands and end up with his mark on our hands and forehead. Hmm. The church prostituted to the power of Satan bears his mark of human reason and intellect on their forehead. Only the Spirit can reveal the reality of that mark in a church prostituted to Satan's power. Not only does this woman bear the mark of Satan on her forehead, but she is also, quote, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And that's from Revelation 17.6. You know, maybe that's why she sits on a scarlet beast. Scarlet? It's the color of blood, right? As we learn in the first appearance of the beast who comes out of the abyss... The witnesses of Jesus are prophets. And that's in Revelation 11.3. You know, it, it's, the phrase is witnesses of Jesus, but we learn that they're also re referred to as prophets in Re Revelation 11.3. The saints represent those who are reconnected back to God through the Spirit, and of those, the prophets are the ones who are tasked with assessing the spiritual health of the church. These are the ones that Satan uses the prophets church to attack because they are at the center of the true church according to God and Jesus. They aren't just about doing the right Christian works or knowing the right Christian truths, 
but about being empowered in those things by the Spirit. You know, remember from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus rebukes people as evil, even though they're doing the same works as him, right? Why? Because he said, I never knew you. Same thing here. You know, these saints and witnesses are the church within the church, the remnant, the faithful and true bride, because they're powered in the right way, not just because they're doing the right things, right? The tool Satan uses to attack the church is the prostituted church. The prostituted church is the bride on the beast. It's still the church, but operating with the wrong system. That's why John hears a voice saying, quote, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. And that references from Revelation 18.4. God calls his church out of the prostituted church because they are intermingled like weeds and wheat, right? There is the church according to Christ, and there is the church according to Satan. These are separate in identity, but not separated in form and function. They are two kinds of churches occupying the same space. They're in the same field, growing, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right? It's also hard to distinguish these two churches because God chooses not to separate the weeds and the wheat, right? God allows both in his church garden for a time, but also wants us to understand the difference so we can continue being perfected into the true bride of Christ. Amen. Remember, guys, there is no perfect or pure church or Christian, right? We're all a mixture of weeds and wheat in our garden, in the garden of our souls, right? We've already talked about that. Same is true of the church at large. So it sounds, mm, it sounds kind of like, woo, really? The church according to Satan and the church according to Christ, and these are two different things. Yeah, but they're the same thing, right? It's two different approaches to church, but I would never say there are whole churches given to Satan and whole churches given to God. Every church is mixed and it's cool if you go to church and you'll meet certain people that you can just tell these these people are mature, spiritual, godly men and women and then you'll meet other people who are like those people are about their own power, their own prominence and their own control, right? They like the prestige and importance of being close to the pastor, of having the right position and they, you know, they're wealthy sometimes, and you know they're giving their money for their own benefit, right? Just like the, Jesus criticized the Pharisees for the same thing. They were making a big show of all the money they gave, and he praised this woman who gave her last few pennies. It's the same kind of idea, people. So, you know, understand. The church has never been the pure bride. We're becoming the pure bride, but that's the point, guys. The point is that you would understand the paradigm. What makes the bride truly Christ's? And where has the bride become like a woman on a beast? Recognize that in your own heart and mind, life. Recognize that in your own church. 
local or denominational, national, whatever, and like start to parse it out. This is the whole point. The point isn't to get on a high horse and say, well, I'm the true church and I'm a true Christian and you're not. No, guys, we're all on a journey. This is not for the purpose of ego so you can see yourself as better or I can see myself as better or your denomination is the right one. And those other ones aren't. (laughs) It's not the point. We're all the church. We're all convoluted. We're all struggling. We're all personally on a journey of becoming. The point, though, is that we need to distinguish the true power behind our individual Christian journey and our individual churches so that we can start to say, you know what? You know, in my heart, I'm really in this area more about my own power and prominence and so therefore i'm playing into the hands of satan and i need to work on it right the conviction of the spirit needs to come in constantly and go okay let's work on this now let's work on that so that's the point and let's keep going let's keep growing amen this has been a construction monk podcast i'm your host jay randall stewart we are reading through the book prostitute subtitled calling away we're church back to christ and we just went through chapter 14 which is entitled the woman on the beast and of course you can go and catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com including the text version of this chapter all right guys love you bye